Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 113 of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to traverse the wild jungle of conversation, is my best friend and former man cub, Aaron. Hello. <laughs> this episode marks the first of a two-part crossover event celebrating the classic Rudyard Kipling tale, The Jungle Book. And we've brought in the guys from the Retro Rewind podcast, Francisco Ruiz and Paul Powers. Welcome back to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks, indeed. We've really enjoyed having them on for other crossover events in the past, such as Tron and Tron Legacy, as well as the original X-Men back in 2000 and Logan. So if you get a chance, be sure to check out all of those episodes, as well as the upcoming episode on their show, where we talk about the original animated iteration of this film. Now, before we jump into our discussion, we hope you'll bear with us for a couple of necessities that we need to get out of the way. Oh, Patrick, is that how this is going to go? Of course it is. Has of to course go it is. We, we just can't get rid of the bear puns. This is two weeks in a row. Well, we just wrapped up our donor pick voting for the June episode, and hopefully we'll be able to announce that winner soon. So if you're not a member of our Facebook group, we'd encourage you to join it. All four of us are actually members of that and love conversation. It's also a good place to keep up on things that are going on with the show rather than just hear them at the end of an episode or maybe on an episode that you happen to listen to, if you're not listening to every single episode, because maybe you haven't seen the film. So check out that Facebook group. You can find a, a link to the Facebook group and the show notes every time we drop an episode. And you can also find a link to it on our website or, you know, just type feel and film into the Facebook search bar. And we should be the first thing that comes up. Hey everybody, Aaron jumping in real quick here from the future with an announcement. We just launched something new and we want to tell you all about it. It's called Premium Picks. We've had many listeners contact us over the last few years and say, Aaron and Patrick, why don't you do this movie or why don't you do that movie? So what we decided to do was make a system so that you could influence what we are covering on a monthly basis. The way this is going to work is you have two different pricing options. There's a solo option available if you want to just put a chunk of money down and sponsor an episode for us to cover, or you can pool your resources with other listeners and crowdfund an episode for us to cover. Check out the website, feelinfilm.com slash premium dash picks for more information, all the details, and the links to go ahead and pay and get started. If you're interested, awesome. Let us know what you want, and we're happy to do it. If you're not, we're just glad that you're here and you're listening, and we hope you continue to do so. Thanks. Lastly, we do always like to promote our shows that we enjoy, and this week we want to tell you about one that is very awards-heavy. Matt does a great job throughout the year of keeping track of what performances and filmmakers are going to be leading the charge come awards season. So check him out at nextbestpicture.com and give his podcast a listen. Here's a word from him. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture. 
Com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the filmmaking industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and get into our full spoilery review. If you have not seen this movie, this is, just to clarify, this is the 2016 John Favreau directed live action adaptation. Wow, that's a lot of descriptors for this work for this movie of the Jungle Book. I know there's been a lot of different versions of it. So just to give you clarification, that's the one we're going to be talking about on this episode. So feel free to come back and enjoy the conversation after you've listened if you don't want to be spoiled. Now, because this episode is going to be packed with four people talking good conversation, we'll go ahead and just jump into our one word takeaways and We'll go ahead and kick it off with Paul Francisco. Why don't you guys start us off with your one-word takeaway? Okay. My uh, one-word takeaway was the word camaraderie. For me, this is a story of friends and family that come together and actually fight for one another, and they can accomplish many things because of that camaraderie, and it really inspired me to uh, be there for my friends and help them accomplish their goals. For me, my one word takeaway was actually unbelievable, but not quite how you think. So, <laughs> so much of this movie looks so photorealistic and the level of visual realism just for me necessitated a much greater degree of authenticity in how the animals should be acting toward one another. Now, I know I hear, I hear sighs. I just hear people sighing right now, but listen, I understand that there are some similar interactions in the source material and uh, if this film came out shortly after the book did in like 1894, it probably might have like this might as well have been a documentary. It's so true to life. But for me in 2018 with like Discovery Channel, Planet Earth, elements of this film are just so far removed from reality for me that I think it would have worked much better if it had stayed as a traditionally animated movie or make it like a CG Pixar type movie. So it's for me unbelievable in that Wait, way. Wait, are you saying it's unbelievable because there's animals talking? No, not that. How those animals interacted with one another. Well, I was able to suspend some disbelief, but let's let's see on the one word takeaways, Paul. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand your your where you're coming from. That's all. I just laid it out. Listen, it's a well, bit confusing to me. We have a similar word in common, Francisco, because my one word takeaway is actually the word photorealistic. And for me, so I saw this for the first time either on my birthday or on my birthday weekend. Uh, every year I take my kids to a movie for my birthday weekend to celebrate. And I remember coming out of it blown away by the CGI and the animation work. Yeah. Now I will say to your point, it does start rough for me with Mowgli running through the jungle. He doesn't look like he fits in the jungle at the time. And there are many times where when he is speaking to an animal, it's very odd and doesn't necessarily seem like they're there. So that's a bit weird, but overall, the animals themselves, the photorealistic look of the jungle and the the animals as they're interacting with the environment, 
I thought it was amazing and it was just a complete visual treat at many times it appeared to be an actual landscape. I thought it was just a real shot of a jungle with animals walking around off in the distance that were alive. I love the detail in the creatures, the way that the fur ruffles and, you know, their paws move. The use of the shading in the film is a big thing for me. And then specifically how the fire lights up the dark sky in the jungle at the end. Those are some of the shots that just really stuck out to me. And I, I think it's a gorgeous movie to look at. And it just, even if you don't care about the story, I felt like you could soak in the eye candy of this film. That's for sure. The, the visuals alone, I think, allow this film to stand out above a lot of the, the movies that were coming out in 2016. This was when Film and Film was just getting its feet on the ground and it wasn't one of the movies that we actually covered, but I know that eventually we wanted to. And when I saw it, I actually saw it for the first time for this episode. And the, the word that came to mind for me was identity. And this is interesting because last week when we were talking about Paddington 2, some of those same themes and some of those same ideas really existed there too. So it must be something with animals that that creates this, this common idea of identity. And there's this thread of understanding who you are, not necessarily where you came from, that I latched onto pretty quickly. And what I love is knowing that the film challenges us as an audience to embrace who we are, to not apologize for it. And Mowgli's journey from man cub to man is centered around this key idea. And I think that's, for me, what the strongest element of the film is outside of just the incredible visuals. And I think it's a, I think it's a great jaunt for Favreau to, to step into when it comes to adaptations. And it kind of makes me excited about his Lion King adaptation and what he's going to bring to the table with, with that. So, yeah. Very good stuff. He's a real Iron Man of these adaptations. <laughs> he really is. He That's whips them up with a fantastic recipe of excellent <laughs> filmmaking skills. Just like a chef. <laughs> just like a chef. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I guess I started that and we're going to keep going. <laughs> well, let's begin one of the big questions that I had walking into this film was this idea of adaptation versus reimagining. And these might be interchangeable words, but as I was watching the jungle book and with my knowledge of the original 1960s animated film, along with the original story, I kept thinking, is this an adaptation or is this a reimagining? Because there were some elements of the jungle book compared to its musical animated counterpart that were changed. And I wanted to ask you guys, would you consider this a reimagining, an adaptation, both, neither? How would you guys really kind of sum up what this iteration of The Jungle Book is? Well, for me, it's I, I would say it's a reimagining of the animated movie and definitely okay. also an adaptation of the book. I mean, I think that both the animated and this version are adaptations of Rugard, Rudyard, I can never, Kipling's original. Just uh, say the last book. Yeah, just Kipling's <laughs> book. Uh, but I think it's, this is definitely, I mean, from the songs to the characters and a lot of the beats are so similar to the animated version that I think this is just a reimagining of that. I would say it's a re reimagined adaptation. Uh, basically I saw the behind the scenes, um, 
and I, I where John Favreau says that uh, the Disney Corporation, the artists, they basically made a, a very close adaptation of the book, and it was. Um, so it was, I would say, an adaptation, but it didn't have any songs. It didn't have Louie or anything because, you know, the original book didn't. And John, being such a big fan of the 1967 animated version, said, no, no, we've got to put those back in. And But he didn't put them all back in. So it's kind of like a mixture of both. It's kind of like... Let's see if we it, it's a, it's taking the book and the animated movie and putting them together and this is the outcome. Interesting. Well, I, I would probably go on the side of reimagining more than anything. I don't think that it's a straight adaptation story-wise. There are enough there's enough difference in the beats and the things that are focused on and the way that they're focused on the relationships that I think it could be considered more of a reimagining. He really, he gave it his own flavor, his own tones. As we've talked about, you know, when this first came out, it's very dark compared to the original lightheartedness kind of, of the Jungle Book animated version, which is partially due to literal color. Like this is in the dark a lot, where that one is almost always in the daytime for the most part. Uh, And so I think he's intentionally taking a different, angle at the same story and poking at some themes that the original maybe had, but didn't necessarily want to go full in on at the time. Yeah. I think for me, it's not something that I feel like, I feel like it could have been stronger if it were straight one way or straight another. Like if it were a, a reinterpretation of the original source material without songs and without some of the elements of a musical from, from 67, or if it were like beauty and the beast, a live action version of the original animated story. And I can appreciate what Favreau's doing in saying, I want to put my own spin on it, but particularly when you have elements like these two songs and, and we'll get into this in just a minute, I think personally it takes away for me a little bit of what the overall tone of the story is. So Favreau chose to include two of the key songs from the original musical version from 67. Some people were upset about this because there were only these two songs. And do you think that his throwing these two songs in, do you think it made the movie totally different than it could have been? Do you feel like it fit well into the overall story? Do you feel like it flowed well? Or do you guys feel like it felt kind of out of place, these two particular songs? Like the fact that there's only two songs in the in the movie, it's not a musical, but it has these two songs that are in it. So where did that sit with you guys? Did you guys like the fact that these two songs were included? Did you feel like it was out of place? Uh, how did that make you guys kind of respond to the movie? Well, for me, it's actually both because it's Disney and Disney has its name. I mean, this isn't the Jungle Book. This is Disney's The Jungle Book. So people come in expecting these songs because they were in the original. So I like that they were in. However, you're absolutely right. This is a much darker tone. And to me, it felt like these songs were kind of forced and kind of shoehorned in there. Um, Especially the, the, 
I want to be like you because here you have a big, uh, the gigantithicus or whatever, that big monkey. And he has these intense eyes of, uh, um, what's his name? I can't believe I forgot. Walken. Yes, Christopher Walken. It, it looks like he has the intensity of Christopher Walken on a bad day. And all of a sudden, he starts singing out of nowhere. And tonally, it's kind of like going, whoa, this is weird. He's making threats, and yet he's breaking out into an up-catchy song. So it's I, I can see where it it's good to have the songs, but it's... I felt like maybe there should have been a little more tweaking introducing the songs, making it flow a little more. I don't know. I, I'm conflicted. Yeah. I, you know what? I didn't really give it much thought when this was like, like, Pesh, this was my first time seeing this, this version of the Jungle Book. And I, I was kind of expecting the songs. I, I was expecting more, actually. And I was actually pleasantly surprised that there were only a couple. And I thought it was. Um, when you have uh, Mowgli and Baloo at first, Baloo is just sort of humming the bare necessities, and I thought that's always going to be. And I was like, "Oh, that's a nice homage. That's a nice hat tip to the animated version." Uh, but when they actually were singing it, I thought that made sense. I kind of agree with you, though, Paul, that the King Louis one, while it's a fun song, it did seem more out of place. Um, going back to the adaptation versus reimagining, though, I think that it makes a lot more sense to have uh, have these changes and also use these songs as sort of an interlock with the original so that it is, it's its own thing. I feel like enough of it's enough, its own thing, but I think it borrowing the songs ties it back in and gives it a legacy as opposed to, I haven't seen the beauty and the beast live action remake, but from what you guys have said and what I've heard, it's like, if it's just the animated version in live action, why do we need this live action? Just leave the animated. So I like that it's different enough, I guess. Aaron, what about you? Where did those songs sit with you? Did they they fit for you? Bro, do you even like movies? I mean, apparently I'm a disliker of Disney. I, I don't know what's going on. Me. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. First, <laughs> first of all, as Judge Aaron of the podcast, I am going to render your opinion of the visuals of this film completely mute. Due to the fact that you did not see it on a big screen, mute or moot. But I love the visual. Both. I I, I agree with you. They're photorealistic. I thought they were so beautiful. I have no qualms about the visuals in this movie. But you just didn't like it. Didn't work for you. It didn't match the authenticity. Like, okay, it's, if you were watching it's Planet, talking okay, animals, okay, here we go. I'm I'm my feelings are charged here. If we were watching Planet Earth and you saw a cobra start uh sort of like sidling up next to uh I don't know, a gecko or something that cobras eat, and they're like they're having fun, they're going out and getting some fruit. That, that no, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen in real life. During the peace These rock, yeah. Visuals are so the peace rock I could see, okay, well this is some fabrication to get all the animals together. Fine. But there's all these other there's these other interactions that just I'm I feel like I'm watching a documentary, but it's completely not a documentary. Let, so let me, something needs to change. <laughs> <laughs> and I yes, I Your like Honor, Your, Your Honor, I'd like to I'd like to chime in for a second. <laughs> I actually get what you're saying, Francisco, and I think that that speaks to my opinion of where these songs fit in in a different way. Where when you have a photorealistic film, you are visually selling something and when you couple that with these photorealistic animals who start talking and even singing you're now 
selling something different. And so there is a visual to kind of storytelling conflict here. We know that the Jungle Book is centered around a man cub, a, a human being interacting with animals and being able to talk to them. So you're not lying to me by, or suspending, I suspend my disbelief by knowing that part of the story. But when you are using a technique like photorealism, you're in some way subconsciously telling your audience to believe something in reality, as opposed to an animated type thing. And it could work in the opposite way when you're watching an animated feature film using quote real people, although they're animated and you have to kind of suspend your belief or I don't know how you would describe that. It kind of works in the opposite direction. And I think that the, the, the songs in this film were nice to haves, but I don't think they fit in the overall story in the same sense that I think the visuals as stunning as they were, were challenged by the overall fantastical story itself. I'm not saying that it was a bad choice by any means because it's a great movie to watch, but it definitely can create a problem from an audience's perspective in trying to really sell that fantasy story. Yes, it can. And I came out of this movie really liking it. And the thing that I complained about all the way home in the car to my kids was why were there no songs? And we had a great little conversation about it because they had not seen the animated version at the time. And so they were like, what are you talking about, dad? And I was like, what? And so I put on the soundtrack, right? And, and they were like, yeah, this, okay, whatever. These are some old Disney songs. What are you so upset about? And I was like, but it's the bare necessities. And so they knew that, right? Because it's a pop culture reference. But otherwise, I did not like the bare necessities implementation of the film. Like you, Francisco, when he was humming it, Going down the river, I was like, oh, that's cute. That's sweet. Like, that's as much as we need right there. We're done. The others, I didn't feel like they fit, not because personally they didn't fit within this film, but I felt like it was a matter of you've got to either go or not go. It's like I'm teaching my daughter to drive. Hun, if you're going to put down the gas pedal, you put down the gas pedal and you go. You can't just half go out into the intersection when you're merging you go or you stop one or the other and you either needed to make it a musical <laughs> or not make it a musical and i think favreau got a little mixed here trying to do the old disney trick of playing the nostalgia game and giving the fans something to reference when he really didn't need to that much but it yeah. doesn't ruin the film for me no it doesn't for me either and as an audience I, it doesn't force me to want to sing along with the movie, which I think a live action or an animated musical would. But at the same time, I, I wanted that homage, that, that humming to be all there was, because I think we, at least three of us, maybe all four of us wanted that. We kind of expected, Oh, that's cool. What a great way to kind of throw that in there. And then the, the Louis, the Louis one felt more out of place to me than the bare necessities because it came at a point in the movie where I wasn't expecting a song at all. Yeah. Baloo and Mowgli's interaction could necessitate a song because they're interacting. You had this little kind of hangout montage. They've just kind of gotten all these, this honey out of the, off the cliff. And so they're kind of bonding. Whereas the, the Louis song was just, it didn't feel right at all. So Andy circus, if you're listening to this, cut any songs you've already put in your new movie, Mowgli, please. Cut them, yeah. take them out. That'd be great. That'd be great. 
I will say, based on these songs, while we're talking about real quick, is that I loved it when the score incorporated some of the themes. I wish they did that a lot more and yeah. was disappointed when they didn't, but I loved it when uh, in the score. Like, they did that with the scene with Ka, right? Wasn't that they used that yeah, sort of hypnotic thing? Exactly. Okay, I thought I recognized that, yeah. Well, one of the big things that I enjoyed most about the film was the... I don't know if it was an addition um, because I haven't quite watched, I haven't watched the animated film yet for uh, our crossover just yet. And so I'm going to be pulling from my, my distant brain of, of remembering, but the, the concept of Mowgli and his tricks and going from being sort of a hindrance to him to actually being a necessary thing. And I actually liked this part of Mowgli as a character more than anything else. For me, Mowgli, I struggled. Honestly, guys, I struggled with maybe it's the actor or maybe it was some of the dialogue. Maybe it was the way he delivered it. But the saving grace for me personally was him being creative, him being able to use the the tools of the jungle um, over the course of the the film, being encouraged by Baloo and then eventually um, by his family to help save his people. And I don't remember if that was part of the 67 animated film, but independently, I thought it was one of the strongest parts of the of the movie overall for me. What did you guys think? Yeah, agreed. It, it's, it's not in the 67 animated version, but I do love the arc of being forbidden to use it and then and then using his knowledge of that and the knowledge of the forest of like you know when the when the tree branch breaks and using all his things that he's learned at the end to help um them in the end yeah it's definitely a good arc but it goes back to the believability for me that oh, this no. kid who's been raised by animals <laughs> just can't get is away able from to figure out, like he's like he's like he's been in the Boy Scouts or the uh, Scouts. If you, let's not get political. Um, <laughs> Too late. <laughs> how is he coming up with like mainly the big contraption to cut the honey uh, combs off the cliff? That's just like that's like takes math and all these processes that where you've got to learn that from somewhere. I don't. I cannot believe that he just came up with this i mean i suppose he's some like 200 iq individual there you and go. that's why he can talk figure out animal languages i now that i'm talking about that i guess that's a possibility but it didn't seem like there was it seemed like he got there really quickly like he's going from a bowl to a little fish in the bowl and then oh this whole big contraption so it wasn't it, a big contraption it's just a rope over a branch that they were pulling up and down uh, it's not a complicated, you know. Uh, Francisco reviews The Little Mermaid. Mermaids <laughs> don't exist. Zero stars. <laughs> Francisco reviews The Lion King. Talking birds? Zero stars. They're animated. They can talk. That's fine. The, these are these are animated. They're computer animated. In fact, computer this they're made to look real. Yeah, but this movie, I think, suffers the same thing as Avatar, is oh. that I believe it should have been nominated as an animated movie. Oh. There's as much live action. There's as little live action. There's way more animation than live action. Anyway, moving on. I do want to say that the performance of the kid didn't really bother me, other than that moment of disobedience, but other than that, 
I mean, that was a story thing. Uh, I, I, I thought he was fine. I thought he did a fine job. So that him as a character didn't bother me. It's just those few moments. Well, I think I would say that he, I felt like he gave his all. I thought he did a tremendous job in the effort department. And you got to applaud this kid. I believe it's his first ever acting gig. And he's literally yeah. performing an entire movie in a box of green screen. I cannot fathom the difficulty that it would be to do this job. I just can't. And so, like I mentioned earlier, that's why I kind of give it a break when there's moments that he's his eyes are directed and they're not quite at the animal that he's actually talking to. Now, those are things they could have tuned up that could have made the film better for sure, but it didn't necessarily ruin it. Um, he does have a little bit of out of place dialogue. It feels at time and he's just, he's not perfect for sure. But with regards to the tricks, Patrick, I love that concept as well. The idea that these wolves that have raised him want him to do things a specific way, uh, even though that is suppressing his natural abilities. It's like they want him to conform to be a part of the, the, the other, the group, they want him to be like them because he can't be like them and have different qualities, different tastes, different ways of going about things. And yet Baloo comes along here, right? And says, no, do whatever you want, which in a sense made me like perk my ears up this time around as a, as a Christian from that angle, I was like, Hey, that's not necessarily what we should be promoting either. You know, like we shouldn't just tell him to do whatever he wants. <laughs> that's the world these days. That's what we tell people is to do whatever you want. Don't worry yeah. about the rules or conformity. Follow so your heart. Exactly. And, and you know, even with the honey, it's a great scene of using ingenuity, but why are they doing it? They're doing it because Baloo's selfish. He wants to use Mowgli and his tricks to get something for himself. It's not motivated by anything other than his desire for food. So mm -hmm. I love that that concept is in there and then, because it pays off, right? It pays off with those elephants. You see that moment where he uses it to help Baloo get something for selfish reasons, but then you see him make a decision to use it on his own to save lives and to help others that he has no reason to help. And and it's like an innate trait within him that he just has that desire. And so I love the way that they implemented that part of the story. It was probably the best part of the story. But the motivation behind that and the heart that comes behind that, not just the talent from being able to use his tricks. I think the motivation comes from those relationships with Bagheera and, and Akila, that wolf pack that he is part of. And we talked about this a little bit on the Paddington two episode with regards to nature versus nurture. There is a clear distinction between Mowgli and the wolves. And that was something that was difficult for me to get into at first, because here we have this man cub, this kid who, you know, is called a man cub. And I'm trying to get my head around this who is reciting the, basically the code of the wolves. <laughs> and I'm kind of laughing on the inside of thinking, here's a human being reciting what it means to be a wolf. But then I had to realize this is all he knows. I mean, we don't know what his life, I mean, through flashbacks, we, we know how he got to where he was, but all he knows is the world of the wolves. And it, almost feels like an imprinting of some kind. It's like when you have the family pet, uh, like my dog who she is, she doesn't gravitate towards one or the other or any, 
you know, anyone in particular of our family, she feels safe with all three of us. And when my son is sick, like he's been the last couple of weeks, she lays down next to him to, to make sure he feels better to protect him. When she hears something out in the street, she starts barking incessantly at two in the morning, which is kind of annoying, but Hey, I am okay with that because she's trying to protect the family, but we're not dogs, at least not in the literal sense. Maybe sometimes we can be, but you did call me a man cub earlier. Mm -hmm. You're right. So rough. And now it's rough, but whatever. The, <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, I think that there's that sense of imprinting in the opposite way where he sees at least a bit of his identity because he doesn't know what he's capable of or who he is outside of the bounds of this wolf pack. And so I think that that helped influence what he was later able to do with the elephants. Like, I think if he hadn't had this relationship with those with those wolves, I don't know that he would take that initiative and see value in rescuing that baby elephant. I think you're right. It is him having this higher calling that he's sort of grown up with being part of the uh, wolf clan. That's like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to protect this one because they're part of the larger animal clan of animals, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'll go a step further in cynicism and say he wants to help the elephant because it's in the script not because it was raised by wolves or whatever but that's where the story's going but i did think it was cool at the end like i i I thought it was great to how they showed like oh here's respect for the elephants and they are part of the jungle and everybody has like the animals have their each of their own thing and you know the jungle was able to show them whereas if you're brought up by man man we in our fallen nature tend to be very selfish and look, this is what we do and this is how we survive. But uh, without all that, I thought it was a very utopian jungle. Uh, maybe it's because of the peace rock uh, that, that he, he was brought up in a way that he could see the, the, the positives in all the animals. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe just, maybe I'm looking for things that really aren't there. I don't know. Well, one of the other relationships that stands out is obviously the relationship with Baloo. And I think Bill Murray voicing Baloo is probably one of the best choices because Bill Murray has that snarky kind of matter of fact personality. I almost felt like we were watching Peter Vinkman in a bear suit because he has that, that nonchalantness and he sells that initial I'm going to get this kid to help me and I'm going to convince him in a way that I think makes sense to him. But what I think is interesting is that at some point their relationship makes a turn where he sees value in Mowgli as a person, as another individual, as opposed to being this person who makes Um, his life better by getting him honey. It started out that way, but I think it's one of the, the more interesting relationships that has a bit of a roundedness to it where because of their influence on each other, maybe unintentionally, both of these characters helped kind of give each other a, a small arc of, of growth that their friendship was one that felt very genuine because it grew from being one thing into another. And I think for me, that was a very satisfying 
uh, character art for me was seeing their relationship grow. What about you guys? Yeah, it was definitely, it was cool. Like you said, they, they both contributed to a, one another, like, like Baloo helped Mowgli almost feel like, Oh, I, I can do more than just wherever the wool, wherever the leader of the pack is telling me to do. I am kind of my own person. I do have more agency than I thought. And Baloo learns that almost to trust someone else and, um, it's, it's really, or not, yeah, I guess to trust someone else. I mean, he, yeah, he's using Mowgli at first, but he gets to this point where he's befriended him. And he's, he's saying, you know, when they think, uh, Shere Khan's coming, he says, get, get behind me in, in the river. And then at the end, I feel like you really see, um, Baloo show how much he cares for Mowgli because he's willing to sacrifice their friendship to save his life by saying, hey, essentially, I don't like you. I never liked you. Get out of here. Um, which I, I hate that trope. I get why they use it. I really don't. I mean, oh, wait. I mean, I like tropes. I mean, the tropes make me feel pretty good sometimes. If used well, but I agree. This is the this is one of the most um, hated points for me in the movie. If I'm allowed to hate part of the movie, it's when you take a lovable character like Baloo and you have, he's known for, you know, being friends and he says, we're not friends. And it just goes against everything in me that I want to shout out. No. Can you think of a better way for them to do that though? I mean, is there a solution yeah, to that? Yeah. Problem? Yeah. And that you don't go to that. My, solution would be to uh you need to go to the man village because they have way more tricks and it's only when their tricks that you can learn can per, uh help uh basically guard you against the shere khan the tiger look the tiger's hunting you i'm a bear i'm tough but i'm not nearly as tough as the man village and all their tricks you go learn them and you can protect yourself from shere khan none of this uh I, I'm not your friend. We were never friends. But anyway, um, but I do think that I agree that Baloo starts off using Mowgli. And I don't think that their friendship really becomes two-sided until uh, Baloo uh, no, actually stands with Mowgli against Shere Khan when he starts siding the pack. And he's... Yeah, earlier when he's like, hey, get behind me, I think that's out of obligation. He feels like, oh, here's somebody I'm looking after. Like, Don't steal my mill ticket. Yeah, uh, or that kind of thing. But I don't I don't think he looks at him as his equal or his friend. But it isn't until like, he stands with them to fight Shere Khan that I think they're really, truly pals or friends there. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that, Paul. That's how I took it, this viewing, was... A little bit differently. Um, my first time around, I remember being a lot more mesmerized by their relationship and just really locking in on the cuddly warmth of it and how soothing Bill Murray's voice is and this bear form. And it's like, oh, every time he talks, right? And I'll always remember the line, I think, from this film, the you've never been a more endangered species than you are right now. I, I love that. Yeah, it's one memorable, one memorable one for me. But this time I did notice so much about like, hey, gosh, he's really using him. And he's not in this just to be friends with this random kid he met. He's in this for himself. And he is for a very long time. And it's okay because that's 
an arc and that's how a character goes. I mean, we have to learn things in our lives. And when he does stand with him there at the very end, it's, it's clear at that point that it's more than that. You know, he has, he's made that decision on his own, whereas he's kind of prompted by Bagheera to lie to him. Like you were, you were getting at Paul. He doesn't come up with that idea on his own. Bagheera says, you need to tell him that you're not his friend. You need to do this. You need to do that. And so Baloo reluctantly does it, but he doesn't, necessarily have the agency to come up with it and then when he stands with him in the end he's making that decision for himself 100 percent, no influence and i really like that part of it yeah there's definitely a stronger arc there to go from hate to love or you know what i mean from not friends to uh to fight to the end kind of thing but it's it sucks to go through <laughs> yeah and over the course of what i guess a little under two hours you have a lot of, you have several relationships that are being portrayed. And this one feels like it has the most air that it has the most room to, to grow. And that's what I enjoyed most about it was seeing how their friendship, their relationship, I guess you could say, went through a a genuine set of ups and downs in a natural way. It didn't feel rushed. And the whole movie didn't feel rushed to me at all, but of all the relationships, I felt like it was the one that we could hang out in, for a decent amount of time and feel like we were really, really getting to know this relationship. And it, cause it's different from his relationship with the wolves or the relationship that Shere Khan has with this pack of animals. It's, it's the one relationship, like even with Louie, Louie's felt that was like one and done. I almost didn't want it in there because it didn't feel, it felt like a, a means to an end. You know, and mm-hmm. and I was disappointed because I think Christopher Walken makes a great Louis, but I don't feel like he. I feel like he was a secondary villain that got just enough screen time to kind of justify saying, "Well, he was in the live. He was in the 1967 animated. He's a mini boss. He was exactly, <laughs> yeah." And and it goes back to I think what we discussed earlier about Favreau kind of throwing some things in there that may not have been necessary, but maybe needing to try to satisfy that sense of familiarity to a a previous iteration and so i was kind of sad about that but i was glad that we got the the mowgli and baloo relationship because that's the one that really carries i think both iterations both the live action and the animated film Mm -hmm. now one of the things that i think is great about any fantasy movie any movie that deals you know superheroes or whatever is when you have a good villain when a villain is not just fun to watch, but is intentionally three-dimensional. And I kind of use a pun there because obviously this is photorealistic and uh-huh. whatever. But, but I, first of all, I think Idris Elba as, as Shere Khan is fantastic. I mean, you cannot get a better voice of a villain in the form of a tiger this way. I mean, he was compelling to me. He was uh, the way that, I don't know how the... I don't know enough about the technicals of this movie to wonder if anything was mo-capped. Uh, I don't think the the animals were for the most part, at least not the the four-legged ones. But hearing his voice and seeing the emotions on Shere Khan's face made his character feel dangerous. Um, obviously, I'm a big Tiger fan, but seeing, I mean, I, I think the photo, this is where the photorealism for me really worked because it felt dangerous. Like I felt like something was 
if something was going to happen, it was going to be a big, bad thing. And when he just nonchalantly kills, uh, I don't remember the, the Aquila. Aquila, Aquila, just, just like that. My, my mouth hang up and I was like, there's nothing dramatic about that. He just goes whack and he's done. Having Idris Elba in that role, I think helps elevate Shere Khan as a villain that, that I can support in a movie like this. Yeah. Um, he de- yeah. he definitely, Idris Elba definitely voices Shere Khan with, I, I would say both like just naked aggression. Like this is a tiger. You don't mess with it. And also mm-hmm. this is like cunning, like, Oh, I'm just going to keep this pup just so you know who's in charge. I mean, just, mm-hmm. just really. So a lot of subtlety and a lot of just out and out, uh, raw fierceness. So I, and yes, a compelling is a great word patch. I, yeah, I was, he was a great villain. It's, it'll be interesting to see what Benedict Cumberbatch does in the role of sheer Khan, which is funny because he is Khan in into darkness. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it'd be hard to beat Idris Elba's portrayal in this, in this iteration. I don't know. I, Idris Elba was my favorite voice cause he had enough bass that actually sounded like it come from an animal. Yeah, um, like a growl. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as the dragon in the Hobbit movies, I'm really looking forward to what he's going to do with it. Yeah, I am too, and I do love Idris Elba in this role. I think all of the voice acting is pretty good. I actually love Ben Kingsley as well, just to diverge for a quick second. I'm oh, a huge yeah. fan of Bagheera. I have my own baby panther who was watching the movie with me, and so... I thought he was he had that royalty about his in his voice that tone at uh, kind of I don't know it's a, it's an English thing <laughs> that makes him seem more refined mm-hmm. and elderly and statesmanlike and so I thought that those two roles really worked well and then of course Bill Murray um, Scarlett Johansson did not work as well for me honestly as Ka now that goes beyond just the fact that I don't like snakes and I don't watch this part in the movie i cover my eyes and listen so maybe i'm listening deeper or something but she just honestly she's too sexy she doesn't <laughs> she does she she is she has a too attractive of a voice for me to believe she is a big snake that's trying to wrap him up and i know there is a seductive property to ka in both versions of the film so that's what they're going for but it just doesn't play well for me when it's an actual voice that i know what about yeah. someone like uh helen mirren and yeah i think the british and sort of more i think a bit more stately but also could have a touch of seduction to it a little little older too not yeah. not quite as young and vibrant in the in the voice but mm. yeah with Khan, i'm with you guys 100 percent. and the the scene where he attacks Aquila is just mind-blowing because he's just talk 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 whomp like gone right tossed the other one is when they wake up at night and they look up and it's completely dark and you just see outline of him and he's up there on, on the rock, just telling stories to the wolf cubs at night. That was the most creepy and scary scene in this entire film for me. Cause I was like, <laughs> yeah. wow. I mean, if you woke up and you saw that, how terrified would you be as a parent? Yeah, you know, yeah. like that is so scary and to know you can't really act against him. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, it was, it was awesome. And, and so much of that is the voice performance. Like it would not work no matter how good that animation was making him stalk and be 
aggressive and making him be like powerful looking, it wouldn't work unless the voice was attached to it perfectly. And it, and it was just the, the greatest marriage of character for me in the whole film. I agree. So one question I had, and I wanted to pose this to, to you guys because I was kind of left in the dark and maybe it's just because I didn't pay close enough attention, but I was trying to understand what Shere Khan's motive was for wanting to kill Mowgli. I mean, he potentially leaves to go to the man village, but Shere Khan still goes after him. He wants him to die. And I don't, is that question ever answered? And if it's not, what other motives might exist with him? Is it just ego or, or what? Because I, I couldn't quite pick that up. Um, or is it like the Joker? Does he just want to watch the world burn? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Uh, for me, it's definitely he has that. Um, I'm I if it were in my power, I would wipe out the human race. He definitely has this maniacal um, uh, feel behind him. But because Mowgli's father physically uh, attacked him, you know, burned his eye and part of his face. He wants to make sure that that never happens again through because that is man mankind did that. So he, he's going to pick off if any person strays from the village, he wants to pick them off and he wants for me it was enough motivation for like oh, it doesn't matter if you let him go to the village. I'm still going to go after him because he's a man and he can I want to be the top of the, the, you know, the king of the jungle kind of a thing. And I don't want man to rule. I want to rule. So for me, it was enough motivation. For me, what about you? It was pretty much just a Captain Ahab thing. This was the son of the guy that scarred him and blinded him. So he just wanted revenge. I didn't, I think, I think the, oh, trying to take out man was a foil and a way to fear monger among the animals. It wasn't that wasn't really his motive though. He just wanted Mowgli dead because he was the son of the one that hurt him. I, I that's that's the impression I got. That could be all there is to it. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. I don't really see that much differently than Francisco does. Yeah, it's something that I think makes him that much more dangerous as a villain because of the fact that he's motivated by I think all those things. I think Paul, you made a great point that we don't see him in a pack of other tigers. I mean, we see him running solo. We see, and granted the wolves, I think are the only main animals that are in a pack, we see other, I guess, other animals here and there that are not part of the main cast. But I think Shere Khan is one of those characters who wants to be the king of the jungle, even though he's not the king of the jungle. And Francisco, I want to point out just like you did that moment, uh, just what you mentioned earlier, Aaron, when they wake up and he's telling these stories to these little wolf cubs and they're told to come down to come back to sleep. And he just puts his paw right in front of that last one and just holds it there for two seconds. And then he just lets it go. It says so much about the power that he has without even having to do anything major. Of course, he's already done something major. He's killed off (laughs) this other character. And I just, I was anticipating that something big was going to go down at some point. And, uh, and that's, it's a good storytelling for me. Yeah. It's good writing. It really is. Well, if you guys don't have anything else, let's go ahead and move into our connecting points. And as a, if you're not familiar with that, it's the moment or the scene or the element of the movie that really makes us connect with the film. And we'll go ahead and start with our guests. Why don't you guys, uh, 
kick us off with your connecting point. Okay, for me, uh, basically, like I said before, all the jungle animals, they come together and confront Shere Khan. To me, I was just, I was tearing up. It, it was such a powerful scene to me. It's like, man, if they can put aside their differences to, you know, uh, even the, the, the Baloo guy who's the Joker and is not serious can be serious and join them as friends and like everybody, uh, they, they can put aside their differences and actually use their differences and band together and, and to overcome this evil and threat, it's, it's just really inspiring to me. And it brings hope. Like, you know, even as bad as this world can be, like, if we band together, we can overcome. For me, my connection point was the end credits with the book. So He was just happy it was over. No, I he knew was so that. He was so tired of that, so no, tired of that photorealistic that? ugliness. Was that, was that animated? I think that was animated, right? <laughs> Listen, this is my connection point. My turn. <laughs> My time down here. Uh, during the end credits, so during the end credit sequence where we see the, the shot of this book closing like a di- like the Disney films of yore, I felt like that was such a nice homage. And I was like, oh, I remember the old Disney films. And then when it opens back up and we have King Louis singing and it, uh, I was just like, oh, oh, what's this? And so it flips through different vignettes from the movie. I just got the biggest grin on my face by that. They, the, the way they did this, it reminded me of those. I don't know if you guys ever did this, but in elementary school for me, we had to do like shoebox dioramas of whatever book we were reading. We had to like make a little diorama of it. And it made me think of those, but obviously animated and like a billion, bajillion times more gorgeous than anything I ever made. But uh, it's so unbelievable. Let me finish. <laughs> so you top that off with, uh, the animals from different pages, then starting to interact with the animals from other pages. So you have that little mouse guy is like bigger than Cheer Khan. It was just, it it was great. Uh, it was pure Disney magic, as corny as that was, uh, as corny as that sounds. Uh, so I would have loved to see the whole movie actually borrow this motif of turning through different chapters of the book so much more because I think it would have allowed me to suspend my disbelief of this animal interactions to a much greater degree, like constantly reminding me that this is a fairy tale and the focus is on the themes and the morals, not on the realism. Uh, Whereas, like I said before, it's just beautifully photorealistic. Like I'm watching a documentary, but the animals aren't interact. I'm fine with them talking. By the way, I'm fine with them talking, just how they interact with one another. I think that's the first time we've ever had a connecting point that we wished the movie was something different. <laughs> so well, the movie had us. The movie knew how to do this. New ground this on doing film. <laughs> You're feeling it, man. It's, it's a... okay. You can feel it however you feel it. It's not positive, but you can feel it. <laughs> I have very positive feelings about this end credit sequence. It was beautifully made. The and part of the movie John that I didn't even watch. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really... Oh, I was about to say real quick trivia it's really cool that they used the actual book from the 1967 that they filmed opening up was the same book they they went and got the disney archive and used that as at the end credits there and that's the same one that is really neat and that would have been a nice homage you didn't need to throw extra stuff in there (laughs) yes they did to make it even better whatever (laughs) to remind francisco of his add that it's not a real movie or, or a documentary 
Well, for me, I had a couple, but the one that stood out to me was actually Baloo and Mowgli looking down at the man village. And Aaron, you mentioned it earlier, the way that the the fire or the red flower lights up the 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 jungle, I think it's just a beautiful uh, visual. And seeing the man village kind of glowing with with that fire was was pretty fantastic. But it's the conversation that really stood out to me where Baloo tells Mowgli that he hasn't seen anything like what Mowgli did to get that honey down from the cliff. And Mowgli at this point is ashamed of these tricks. And he says, it's not the wolf way, which I kind of chuckled because I'm like, you're not a wolf, you're a man, whatever. But again, I'm suspending my disbelief here. And I'm going, Baloo responds by saying, who cares? That's the Mowgli way. You say you want to go to the man village. I say you can be a man right here. And this is really the first time that we get the first steps of Mowgli as a character owning who he really is and not necessarily being defined by where he came from. Mm -hmm. The fact is everything Baloo is saying is for his own gain. There's no doubt about that, but it doesn't negate the fact that there's truth to what he's saying. And I wrestled with this because I started asking the question, is it okay to be deceptive in order? order to gain something better later on. Now that's a question for it's a different conversation. It's just something that I'm, I'm still pondering, but you guys mentioned earlier that when we look at Mowgli and being who he is and being independent, I didn't really look at it that way. I looked at it as realizing who he was and owning that completely. And I think there's some really encouraging stuff there about understanding who you are and not being defined by, the place that you live or the circumstances that you're faced with, but really how you come about from that and how you, you know, rise above it. Uh, Paddington too had some of those same themes in it. And I, that's why I gravitated towards it because of the fact that these characters are not defined intentionally with Mowgli. He's not defined by his manness or his wolfness because he's not a wolf physically, but he adapts that wolf lifestyle but as the movie progresses, he embraces his mogliness, not necessarily his man cubness. And, and I think it's fantastic that he's actually found out who he is and found and become proud and become confident in who his identity is. And it starts with that moment. That is very true. And it kind of leads into mine as well. My connecting point is Mowgli taking fire. He has learned at this point that he's been lied to by both Bagheera and Baloo, which has got to be pretty soul crushing because these are his closest friends. And the way I read this is what does he do? Like any good human, he rebels. And even with the best of intentions, he sets out to get revenge for the murder of Akila, but he does so by ignoring the laws of his parents essentially and using the red flower, which he sees as a symbol of power to stand up to Shere Khan. And I think this is just a brilliant scene of a human who wants to do the right thing, but yet he's still kind of a child. He's, he's not grown up this way. He doesn't have the full understanding of what his actions could bring. This felt very relatable. It's like any moment that any four, all four of us have experienced multiple times in our lives where we thought we were doing something for a certain reason we thought it was going to have a specific outcome but we did not have the foresight to understand all the variables around it he's also acting out of anger out of 
being upset. He's not in a, a place of logic or calm reasoning. And so it's really tragic to me that he ends up lighting the jungle on fire accidentally. You know it's coming. And that's what I think is so good about this scene in this moment is that it's telegraphed right from the very beginning when they introduce it. But it still has an emotional impact because of how it's presented to us. And then despite Shere Khan baiting him to attack with the fire, I think he goes through so much growth in just this small process where he now he is reasoning at this point to the, to the level where he puts himself at risk by tossing it away. And he knows what that's going to do. He has a plan at this point. He's now thinking more clearly and he has something that he is going to intentionally attempt. And it's beautiful. It's a moment of growth for Mowgli. And I think it really unifies all the residents of the jungle to give us this moment where they're standing up to the local bully. Uh, and it's just, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it made me feel the most during this movie. Yeah. That moment for me was, I think where he went from man cub to actual man, where he grew up. Is that when his mogliness increased? I think so. I think he had mogli bonus bonus there or something like that. But all these moments, all these points are are fantastic. And I think that they speak volumes, even in credits to <laughs> just the, the different elements of the movie that, that make it really good. So uh, good stuff guys. And, uh, and, and great connecting points. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. We are so glad that we could have the boys from retro rewind over to talk about this film. And we're looking forward to, uh, doing the second half of this uh, crossover in a couple of weeks by talking about the 1967 Jungle Book. Uh, until then, where can people find you guys on social media? Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Uh, Francisco, why don't you chime in for that? Yeah, you can find pretty much all our links are at RetroRewindPodcast.com. Uh, our Jungle Book episode is going to be RetroRewindPodcast.com slash 150. So uh, if you have, if you're listening to this, it's probably not out yet, but it will be out uh, in a few weeks. And uh, you can find, yeah, Twitter at RetroRewindPod, Instagram at RetroRewindPod. Uh, those are the best places to find us. And watch us live stream on Twitch TV. We do that <laughs> too. <laughs> That's more games than movies, but yes. And you guys have a Facebook group as well, correct? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Retro Rewind Podcast, the group experience. Nice. nice. <laughs> Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you to continue the discussion? Well, the aforementioned Facebook group for us as well, Feelin' Film, you can find me there, active all day long, every day, as well as on Twitter at Feelin' Film Aaron or using our official Twitter account at Feelin' Film. Fantastic. And if you want to catch up with me or talk through any of the movies that we've discussed over the last couple of years or just anything, you can find me on social media at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm at Facebook and Twitter. Just uh, throw that name into the search bar and you should find me pretty easily. I'm hanging out in the Facebook group as well, dropping the poll question every week and in the general discussion here and there. Once again, thank you guys, Francisco and Paul, for being on the show. We look forward to continuing the discussion of Jungle Book in a couple of weeks. And for the rest of you guys, thank you for listening. We appreciate every ear that listens to our conversation. It's always great to get your feedback. Uh, If you want to drop us a review on iTunes, feel free to do that. And in the meantime, 
stay positive, and keep feeling filled. Well, quick announcements. We just wrapped up our voter donor pick voting. Voner? Did I just say voner? Our donor voter pick voting. Oh. Wow. <laughs> With racy films, apparently. <laughs> oh, is that why you guys asked me to dress to be bare naked today <laughs> on this, for this podcast? Oh, okay. This is getting weird too fast. <laughs> Well, we just wrapped up our donor voter. <laughs> Can't do it. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Hold on. Disc picks. Disc picks. <laughs> <laughs> the movie that you, the voters, no, you, the donors voted on?